Hi, thank you for tuning in to Consciousness Positive Radio. This impromptu episode is a bootlegged, or I guess maybe leaked is the more modern term, recording of a talk given by David Nichols in San Francisco. It is about considerations and critiques of capitalism in the psychedelic movements. And I, after receiving the audio, which I don't know who recorded it, but I listened to it and it just seemed in, it just seemed the opposite of consciousness positive to keep this to myself. Um, I've been wanting to understand the conflict of that compass pathways represents for a while. And I've been keeping up with it on social media and doing some of my own research. And this explanation really helped clarify to me about the inherent risk that it poses to collaborate and uh, fraternize with um, that group. So I um, asked David Nichols if he would be willing to come on the show and introduce the audio. Now, I just want to reiterate that um, I don't know who recorded it, and I'm not in intention of violating anyone's privacy or um, stealing. I just think that this is really important information to get out in a timely manner as the risks of continued uh, support of compass pathways are are real and and quite tangible. I, I think as especially after you hear this talk, I think you might agree. So I'm open to your feedback. Um, even more so, probably you'll get better information out of David Nichols. So you can find him on Facebook. And thank you um, for being open to listening. Thank you for uh, your consciousness positivity. Here we go with David. So the stage is set. After decades of prohibition, countless thousands of people imprisoned on drug charges, and finally, the a medicine that's going to liberate the people is so close to being brought to public access. And then we hear of the shadow. There are bad people. There is a bad group. They threaten the autonomy and the legitimacy and the freedom to psychedelic research and pose all sorts of other nasty, misogynistic, capitalistic, commoditized, colonized problems. How do we understand it? What do we do? I've got David Nichols here to help me and hopefully you understand what is the issue with compass pathways and what are some of the ins and outs of this psychedelic shadow, so to speak, that we're facing right now? Hey, David. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah. It's really great to be here. Thank you so much. So can you explain the context of this situation with between compass pathways and maps and how this plays into where we're at right now? Sure. So, I mean, as I understand it, um, I'm here because somebody uh, provided audio of uh, some of the conference that CIIS put on this weekend. And um, I understand for, for a lot of people, there are many issues at stake that don't really make a lot of sense because there hasn't been a lot of transparency as to what's going on. Uh, at this point, I guess I've authored two open letters, the second which uh, is called, you know, uh, the second of which concludes with the, the following statement. Considerations on the breach of the statement by Rick Doblin, William A. Richards, and Maps. One, 
Compass is unable to sign the statement and therefore represents an inherently bad actor with regards to the material landscape of open science. David, can you explain what the statement is? Ah, yes, for sure. Um, So basically, the statement on open science and open praxis with psilocybin, MDMA, and similar substances was put together by a group of folks, including Bob Jesse uh, at the CSP. Um, essentially, what the, what the statement dealt with was the threat from corporate, for-profit, venture-backed uh, entities that were essentially looking to encroach on psychedelic research. What happened is that Bob Jesse and other folks begun to be concerned about some entities that had appeared, including Compass, including uh, a company uh, named Eleusis. Eleusis has actually filed a patent for LSD for Alzheimer's and is run by a guy named Shlomi Raz. Uh, you can Google and and find a little bit of information on them. They've actually worked really hard to keep their profile low. Um, so if you find any information out, you know, I'd love to hear what you find out. Um, but basically, the statement deals with four main uh, four main points. And the first one is intellectual and scientific integrity, where uh, it's it's essentially requesting that signatories will report the truth as they find it in their studies, not perhaps as they might prefer. Um, So if they encounter data that is unfavorable to their desired outcomes, that they still share that data. Um, The second point is that they will operate in service. And that's sort of the acknowledgement that while we live in capitalism and there is a need to be paid for our labor, that the reason that we're working with psychedelics and attempting to further these therapeutic protocols or other work with these incredibly fascinating compounds is that, you know, it's for the common good. It's not for private gain. It's not in order to really enrich ourselves on the back of these compounds and and long histories of practice and knowledge. Uh, The third point deals with open science and open praxis which basically states that uh, signatories will not keep any of the materials or knowledge that they gain from their research for commercial advantage. So obviously, you know, folks who exist in a research context understand that there's certain raw data and and certain exclusivity that goes with with doing some of this research and, and the institutions and structures that exist, but that again, um, this is more about not working in a way that, that prioritizes private gain. And the final point is one of non-interference, which basically states that all of these findings will be put in the public domain in order to benefit all of humanity. Now, the way that this document was written, it was written to be as simple and open and accessible as possible. And so when, when we look at the document, the understanding that should come from this is that the document exists in order to secure the material conditions necessary for the actual practice of open science. That is to say, you know, to put that open science ethos into practice in the real world. Uh, As such, you know, I would contend that this letter, uh, sorry, that this statement should be read with the broadest 
understanding as possible. So rather than looking to find loopholes and, and see the exact letter of any of these points, uh, if we're trying to secure the conditions of poor material or the material conditions for open science, we should be viewing this as a lens through which to sort of critically engage with what we see happening around us and ask ourselves, does working in this way um, actually increase the likelihood and capability of an open science paradigm, or does it invite more restrictions and barriers into the landscape? And to me, that seems to be the obvious intention here in talking with numerous signatories. Uh, that seems to be the overwhelming consensus. And even in talking to a number of uh, higher level MAPS folks, that seems to be their understanding. However, Rick Doblin seems intent on having an understanding where the statement on open science, uh, he would contend, means that you help anyone, that anybody who might want information or access, you don't really think about who they are, you just help them. Sort of like if you had a house, you might keep the door wide open and just let anyone come in because, you know, there's no difference between people. And I would contend that that leads to uh, a high potential for really bad things happening in your house. Uh, instead, what I would suggest is the, the, the statement suggests that we figure out who our friends and our family are, who, who is actually interested in helping us maintain a nice living environment that they're also going to be invested in looking after the stuff in our communal house. And we invite them in warmly with loving arms and we offer all that we have to share and share alike. And hopefully by promoting that ethos, you know, we find that we have a really nice living environment and perhaps other people take note of how nice our living environment is and decide to propagate similar living environments on their own. Additionally, I would contend that if we see that there is somebody who is attempting to enter this house that perhaps doesn't have the best intentions at, at heart or mind, um, that the group of signatories at the very least should be able to come together and say, hey, we don't really think that you belong in our house. And even if you're going to go set up your own house, we're not really interested in helping you do that. So in this metaphor, obviously, the, the unvetted and potentially bad actor, I would say inherently bad actor, is Compass Pathways. Compass Pathways is a venture capital-backed for-profit company that's looking to engage in the creation of therapeutic uses of psilocybin for depression. Now, the reason that I bring up that they're venture capitalist fact is because that arrangement necessitates certain realities about how they function. So because they've got these venture capitalist investors, um, the whole reason that these folks have invested in the first place is that they need a return on their investment. And so, you know, beyond that, they'll need to get their money out. And in getting that money out, it likely requires a, a big pharma buyout, where big pharma now owns all of the intellectual property and everything else that comes with that. Uh, additionally, they're looking at a vertical integration as far as their structure. Um, I'll be, you know, in the audio that you have, I go into all of that. And... Uh, so really, it's not so much about the intentions of the people who, who run Compass. It's not about, are these good people? Are they bad people? Do they like mushrooms? Do they trip on the weekends? Um, it's much more about the fact that the structural nature of the entity requires certain actions that jeopardize the future of psychedelic research in very real ways 
for uh, many of the people that are involved, not only in above ground research, right? I've had a lot of folks in the underground say, well, why should we care about this? You know, we don't, we don't do anything in a sanctioned context, so surely this can't affect us. But then I point out that, you know, we have access to peer-reviewed papers. We get access to data that has essentially been put in the commons by researchers. At the point where an organization like Compass um, is, is able to, let's say, release or make certain findings internally, and rather than releasing those as peer-reviewed papers, instead has internal memos. Right. This could be stuff that's, that's materially relevant to their psilocybin research. This could be stuff that's not relevant to their research, but might help a potential competitor, they would be able to lock down most, if not all of that, and keep that from ever going public. So I would say that, that this potential paradigm shift affects all of us in really earth-shattering ways. Um, and, you know, it, it also bears mentioning that there's been a lot of, I would consider them shady goings on um, in the way that Compass has carried itself to date. So, uh, as I mentioned to, to Rick, uh, Doblin this past weekend, when he was talking about, um, what other groups were or were not okay with, I pointed out that, that compass has actually signed an exclusivity contract to my understanding with a, a company, uh, pharmaceutical manufacturer called Onyx. And that is for, uh, exclusivity on GMP psilocybin, which is currently necessary for any phase two or phase three studies. So essentially by signing that contract with, uh, Onyx, Compass has denied access to Onyx from other research groups in, you know, in this field. So that would include folks at like Johns Hopkins, NYU, UCSF. And I would contend that regardless of whether or not anybody in the research world is making a stink about this, I would say most of them, uh, I'm, I'm not going to speak on their behalf. I would, I would say I could understand if they were frustrated. I could also understand if they were more interested in focusing on their research than making a big public stink about something that has already been done and can't be changed. So to me, I think that it's a really significant issue that in whatever it's been, you know, the last decades of psychedelic research, there has never been an issue of somebody signing an exclusivity contract. Now, the group that came together to make the statement on open science was concerned about precisely these actions. And so the fact that Compass has done this and MAPS is still unwilling to distance itself from Compass, I think raises very significant questions about, um, about why they're, they're willing to condone these behaviors. Uh, additionally, if you look into some of the strategies Compass has uh, utilized or some of the, the actors that are on the Compass board have utilized historically, such as Thomas Lundgren, who was the former head of the EMA and who was shown to have opened a consultancy firm while he was still uh, the head of the EMA, that's the European Medicine Agency, uh, sort of the FDA equivalent, right? There's some evidence, I would suggest, that it appears that Compass is planning to subvert the regulators and attempting to engage in regulatory processes in ways that are, are not so above board. Additionally, it appears that there has been, uh, we know initially Compass was set up 
on the Isle of Man, which is sort of a regulatory haven. It's kind of like the U.S. Virgin Islands or these other tax havens. As I understand it, the regulator, regulatory apparatus on the Isle of Man is not particularly stringent. Uh, and so one of the big questions that comes up is why jeopardize psychedelic research by putting it, by trying to carry it out in places where maybe the standards are not quite up to snuff. It seems to me that if something were to go off the rails, that that would be a pretty significant media issue, that that would look like really bad publicity, never mind what happens to the actual person or persons involved, right? So, so what is the merit to risking all of this? Why would you take the chance? Now, additionally, MAPS, as far as I understand it, is both training compass therapists who are uh, naive to psychedelic therapies. And um, that seems interesting because it would sound or it sounds like MAPS is essentially, as a nonprofit, subsidizing the activities of a for-profit, um, which again, I don't know all of the ins and outs. I'm still trying to put a lot of this together, but seems bizarre. And when I pointed out to some of the MAPS folks that when, when I was pushed to say, well, well how, are, how are MAPS and Compass working together, I pointed out that they were engaging in site sharing for some of the upcoming clinical trials, as I understand it. And the response that I got from folks was that um, that's standard industry practice. But again, asserting that that's standard industry practice fails to acknowledge that the reason the statement on open science was authored was because standard industry practice seems incredibly problematic if we look at what's going on in big pharma and if we consider what we would like to see with regards to psychedelic science. And so not only is it an unsatisfactory answer, but just because helping someone is standard industry practice doesn't mean it's not helping someone. The same way that regardless of, of what anyone thinks about what Compass has done, uh, Compass has denied access to Onyx via the exclusivity contract, and MAPS is still engaged in uh, what would appear to be all sorts of aiding and abetting of Compass. So looking at those two brief specifics, as well as the business model of Compass itself, it seems to me that there is no question about the way that Compass is operating and about what that means for the, the material conditions necessary for material science. Uh, sorry, the material conditions necessary for open science. It's been a long couple of days. <laughs> that actually brings me back to the conclusion of a recent open letter I wrote called uh, Considerations on the Breach of the Statement on Open Science and Open Practice, which concluded with on the Breach of the Statement by Rick Doblin, William A. Richards, and Matz. One, Compass is unable to sign the statement and therefore represents an inherently bad actor with regards to the material landscape of open science. Two, given the structural nature of Compass, the desire of its staff to sign onto the statement bears no relevance. Three, Given that the above-listed signatories are currently engaged in efforts to assist Compass in its activities, which are antithetical to the statement, there is indisputable evidence that they are in breach of the statement. And four, given that the aforementioned parties have now been made aware of the manner in which they are in breach, 
any subsequent claimed ignorance should be viewed as willful and malicious. I would suggest that there can be no question that the aforementioned entities are in breach of the statement on open science and open praxis with psilocybin, MDMA, and similar substances. Now, to me, this all seems pretty simple and pretty logical, and I'm surprised that there's so much pushback from maps, but I can also understand, based on some of what I've seen, that it looks like there's a lot of money up, up for grabs, depending on how this all shakes out. There's also questions about uh, the European markets and what might happen in Europe and whether or not Compass may be able to facilitate access for maps. There's also a whole bunch of other issues that are still developing and that I will be doing my best to share as I get more information and understanding, because it's important to me to be able to actually provide the evidence, the documentation, the actual things that I'm finding concerning, not just my analysis of them. I know that, again, we're talking about a research community. It would seem antithetical to try to, uh, to say that I have come to the right conclusion without providing a sort of open science approach to this investigation and saying, here's what I'm looking at please feel free to look at the same data and see what conclusions you come to. And so I know it's been frustrating for a lot of people that I've been speaking in vagaries and I've only been sharing little bits and pieces here and there. But again, it's important to me that this be done in a very carefully documented way where the conclusions can be drawn and, and examined and considered by everyone. And I appreciate the people that have been willing to put up with that kind of frustrating process. So thanks, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, David. And um, yeah, I'll just uh, feed it into your audio now from the, well, the, the audio of you speaking at CIIS conference. Thanks. I appreciate that. And I know that, you know, uh, I know that I believe that this is probably going to upset some people that not only was this audio leaked, but then I was invited to offer commentary on it. And I would say one of the things that felt important, I had a lot of people reach out to me after uh, a picture of Rick and Bia and I went up on the internet. Um, I think that it's important to acknowledge that, you know, Bia put a ton of work into this, into this conference and Bia really busted her ass making it happen. And I think she deserves a lot of uh, recognition for the amount of effort that went into that. At the same time, um, I recognized as a result of the outpouring of comments that came from that image and several places it was posted that people were maybe not clear on the fact that Rick and I had not resolved the differences that Rick and Maps had not dropped Compass and that I am certainly not done uh, attempting to push Compass off of this terrain. And I think that that's also not something that's just for me. I think there are plenty of ways that other folks can, can chip in, whether that's calling Maps and letting them know what you think or asking them for clarification. If you want to send them emails, if you want to post some of the amazing memes that Daniel Titaramdas and other folks have been sharing around, I think there's, there's you know, this should be fun to whatever extent we're looking at that these potential horrible things happening or what I, I view may be horrible things. You know, I think that any, any degree to any degree that we can have fun with this resistance and rebellion to this, this potential corporate takeover of psychedelic spaces, it's important to be able to find joy in this rebellion. And I just want to acknowledge that there's a whole lot of different tensions and currents running through here. And, I don't know that this is the right way to go about it, but this is the way that feels authentic to me. So here I am. <laughs> yeah, and to to introduce 
the recording, actually, I wanted to read um, a status from my friend Britta Love reporting on having attended the conference. So I'll read that now. You may recognize her name. She appeared on an earlier episode. Oh, she's wonderful. I I love Britta Love. (laughs) (laughs) Such a rich weekend of critique and discussions here at the Cultural and Political Perspectives on Psychedelic Symposium. Intense because many in this community, including myself, see psychedelics slash entheogens as tools that could be one of our best hopes for rapidly transforming consciousness and society in this time of social and ecological crisis. And David, I liked what you said about how the earth isn't dying, it's being killed. Oof, spot on. That was my commentary. Back to Britta. To then see the worst of our capitalist, white supremacist, hetero-patriarchy manifesting in our psychedelic community comes as no surprise, but is heartbreaking and hard nonetheless. But to be in community with those of us ready to really look at these things, to have the hard conversations, to see how it is that these wise plants and molecules can help facilitate us facing these challenges, perhaps differently and more deeply than than often seems to be possible elsewhere in society, that was such a gift. There was a ton of controversy surrounding this conference. What I ultimately believe is in the power of all of us coming together with our shared intentions and seeing each other's humanity and finding those places of overlap for moving forward. I can be as critical as anyone else, but I'm learning that a social justice critique is not enough without simultaneously feeling the heart and hard work of humanity um, and humanity of those who are working towards similar goals in different ways. Very grateful for Biel Abate for putting this conference together and for giving a platform for critical conversations about Compass, Mercer, capitalism, racism, heteronormativity, indigenous rights, plant consciousness, and so much more to take place. It reminded me of the Ibogaine conference in Mexico a few years ago. A sign of maturity in the community is when we are big enough to have infighting, but also wise enough to remember that we are community, to have humor about and respect our differences, even while drawing hard lines in our lives on certain principles. It's a tricky line to toe, but I feel proud of us for coming together in this way this weekend. And I know the conversations we had and cross-pollination we did is going to seed very necessary changes and growth even if it's only small steps at a time. All right, so a couple disclaimers before we get into things. Um, I'm going to be raising a lot of questions, questions that don't necessarily have easy answers, and I'm not raising them to answer them. I'm raising them because I think they're discussions that are happening on the margins, and I'd like to shove those into the spotlight. Um, Additionally, uh, there's going to be some disturbing imagery and uh, language in this presentation, so just a heads up. And I'm going to be making a number of assertions. I have evidence and uh, rational arguments for all of that, but we only have about 20 minutes, so I'll do my best. Um, but, you know, feel free to ask me as many questions at the end. What's uh, your name and, then, and what do you mean by disturbing imagery? Um, there's going to be some imagery of police brutality, as what some people might term. Sorry. Um, I'll do my best to give a heads up right when we get to that slide. There's a quote from Rick right before we get to it, just so you know. Um, I'm David Nichols. Sorry. <laughs> I know. Um, So basically, when we just to kick things off, uh, a few assertions. First is humanity currently faces dire existential threats, most notably in the form of nuclear proliferation and climate change. These are being rapidly accelerated under the Republican Party. But uh, proliferation was definitely going on under Obama. Number two, slavery and genocide were foundational to the U.S. and American capitalism, and those legacies are alive and well. 
Um, the U.S. is a waning hegemonic power, and it's still clinging to the grand area that was carved out after World War II. If you're wondering why this is relevant, it has to do uh, directly with where we're deploying troops. And if we're going to be talking about um, treating veterans for PTSD, I think we have to understand the systems of why they are where they are in the world. Additionally, industrial civilization is unsustainable and the main cause of ecocide, which is to say that the earth is not dying, it's being killed, and those who are killing it have names and addresses. The same goes for social safety nets. And ultimately, psychedelics only matter in a human context, which is to say, when we talk about the benefits of psychedelics, we're talking about the benefits to us, to our friends, to our family, to society at large. If society isn't around, there's no benefits. So let's take a brief look at why drugs are illegal. Uh, we can trace this back to white supremacy and the notions that, you know, cocaine crazed Negroes required higher caliber bullets and multiple rounds to stop them from raping white women. We can talk about imperialism and the statements by folks like John Ehrlichman, who, who publicly acknowledged that it was not possible to criminalize being against the war or being black, but they very well could criminalize the compounds that these groups were using and use those as a pretext to go after the groups themselves. Additionally, if we look at this quote by Nixon, homosexuality, dope, uh, immorality in general are the enemies of strong societies, we can see what's being presented as vice. So the notion that uh, uh, homosexuality is vice ties misogyny with drugs and criminalization. And I'm hardly the first pundit to, to comment that psychedelics aren't good for the production of widgets. And we can talk more about microdosing later, but I would suggest that that's playing a role in what we're seeing uh, as far as this mainstreaming. Now, to take a moment and look at, at dominant culture and the state, uh, and when I say dominant culture, I mean systems of white supremacy, uh, capitalism, patriarchy, the, the uh, industrial civilization, things that we find ourselves ground under the heel of on a daily basis. Um, they're predicated on coercion and violence, which is to say social peace is an illusion. Every law in this society is enforced down the barrel of a gun. If you break the law, the expectation is that the cops will show up armed, uh, uh, granted the ability to use uh, lethal force. If you're black or brown, you probably know that significantly better than many other people in society. And there's also the ability for them to lock you in a cage. Now, I would contend that authority is not self-justifying. That means if somebody's going to tell you you can't do something, or if something is a certain way, they better be able to back that up with actual evidence and reasons. As such, it bears noting that psychedelics weren't criminalized by accident, but for political reasons, and that there was no evidence in wi with which to make claims about their dangers to individuals or society. And as such, psychedelics belong in the public domain. Medical, spiritual, intellectual, and recreational applications are all equally legitimate. This brings us to some issues with the medical model. First, the legitimacy of the medical model is, is predicated on prohibitionist dynamics. That is to say, there was no rationale for criminalizing these things in the first place. So when the medical community says, hey, we recognize that these are very dangerous, but trust us, we're professionals. We have the ability to work with these things safely. They've already accepted that the state's argument is valid when we all know that it's not. Second, um, when we look at, it blows me away that there are so many incredibly talented and well-trained professionals who talk about psychedelics being profound uh, medicines because they approach cures, right? We're looking at single or, or very few interventions to see tremendous results. But then when we see how these are being applied on a systemic level, we're treating individuals and then putting them back 
into these profoundly sick systems. And so what we see is, on the macro level, systemic symptom management rather than striving for any sort of cultural cure. And I've seen a number of professionals outright dismiss that that's even a possibility. Additionally, there's been a lot of claims about, you know, uh, professional medicine being capable of, of taking on the burdens and the risk. But if we look historically, and even if we just limit it to a U.S. context, we can see that medicine is and was racist and classist. We can look at folks like Henrietta Lacks, who had their, their biological property stolen. We can look at the experiments that were done on the Tuskegee or Airmen. This isn't like a radical notion that there are problems with medicine. And additionally, Nick Sand stated, psychedelics are not solely about curing ill people, but about making well people weller. And my concern is that the medical model will ultimately subvert and push all these other options to the side in its focus to race towards legalization or medicalization, as is perhaps more accurate. So there's been a lot of talk about mainstreaming, and it seems important to sort of break down what mainstreaming is. Now, personally, I would contend that mainstreaming is a project of respectability politics, wherein we're expected to show that our values are continuous with those of dominant culture. So that would mean that we're showing that our values are continuous with things like white supremacy, capitalism, patriarchy, and I would contend that that ultimately results in the whitewashing or homogenization of marginalized perspectives, right? Those of us who are... Um, ethnic minorities, those of us who are racial minorities, those of us who are maybe gender nonconformist or radicals, find ourselves in a position where our values are fundamentally at odds with those of dominant culture. So we can already anticipate that there's no space for us in mainstreaming, because there's no space for us in the mainstream in the first place. Additionally, as Jeff pointed out wonderfully, the way that things exist in the mainstream is, is as commodities. They're commercialized, they're bought and sold. Any value that they have intrinsically to themselves and to us is removed and instead placed in the context of the market to be bought and sold and stripped of that potential additional value. <laughs> and we also see the flattening and commodification of culture. This is true not only when people make statements about what the indigenous would do or say as you know monolithic groups, but as somebody who's spent quite a bit of time working on underground psychedelic research, publishing phytochemical breakdowns of, of all sorts, I've always bristled when a certain organization sends out funding requests under the notion of support psychedelic science. Because to me, it seems like there's so many more interesting ways that we can support psychedelic science than just giving money. I think we all have things that we can contribute to these fields, and I think emphasizing that diversity rather than flattening it is really important. So obviously it's apparent that I think the mainstream is a mistake. And the main reason is that, as I've said, dominant culture is literally presenting an existential threat to human life on this planet. And if, if we don't exist, psychedelics really don't matter. And for people who are pushing mainstreaming, I would suggest that, as with any uh, assertion you make, that the burden of evidence is on you. So where's the historical or peer-reviewed evidence that mainstreaming has ever worked? <laughs> and if we don't have evidence, then I think we can say that it's meaningless propaganda, which takes us to this notion of support the troops. The point of public relations slogans like support our troops is that they don't mean anything. That's the whole point of good propaganda. You want to create a slogan that nobody's going to be against and everybody's going to be for. Nobody knows what it means because it doesn't mean anything. Its crucial value is that it diverts your attention from a question that does mean something. Do you support our policy? That's the one you're not allowed to talk about. So similarly to Rick, I don't have a problem naming names. Um, there's, there's a company named Compass that has stepped into this arena. They're a venture capitalist-backed uh, endeavor that's looking to engage in a 
uh, vertically integrated model of uh, psilocybin therapy for depression. Um, so if we take a moment and look at how for-profit works, it seems worth noting they put money over everything. Um, they're essentially venture capitalists who invest in this company, and they have a requirement for a return on their investment. That's why they're giving you money in the first place. They're expecting money back. So if they're expecting money back, that means they need an exit strategy, right? They need to get their money out of that investment. Exit strategies generally look like initial public offerings, or in this case, a big pharma buyout. Now, a big pharma buyout means any of the intellectual property, including uh, exclusivity agreements and junk patents that people may say don't have much value other than to restrict access for others, become the property of that big pharma company. Now, I think everybody in this room knows how big pharma companies wield those powers, and the notion that that wouldn't create restrictions for other people, to me, seems a little absurd. Additionally, if we take a moment and look at this model of vertical integration, Right? Basically, this means that, that they're looking to control the supply chain from synthesis through therapy. And that ultimately gives them a lockdown where they can deny access to other folks really by any means possible. If they control all aspects of, of that uh, supply chain, there's very little room for other people to get involved. That also means that they can utilize value-based pricing to maximize profits. And what value-based pricing would look like is, let's say, uh, cost to an insurer for traditional uh, therapy for depression costs $10,000 a year. Now, let's say you can afford to sell psilocybin therapy for $2,000 a year, but you recognize that you could offer it to the insurance company for $8,000 a year because they're still going to save two grand at the end and you're going to put a lot more money in your pocket. But the thing is, we're the people that pay insurance premiums. And it seems pretty simple to suggest that a uh, premium for a $2,000 per year therapy is going to be a hell of a lot lower than $8,000 per year. So when we look at what the results of vertical integration are, we see that it's the monopolization of markets, it's the manipulation of prices, it's the privatization of benefits, and it's the socialization of cost. And as Jeff pointed out, that's not unique. That's how capitalism works. Additionally, if we look at some of the characters involved in Compass, um, we can see that, that there's an empowerment of authoritarians and surveillance apparatus. And so let's look at Peter Thiel. Right? Not only did he provide the funds for Hulk Hogan to shut down Gawker, but he created Palantir. If you're not familiar with Palantir, it is perhaps the most insidious surveillance apparatus that exists to date, which I would suggest is significant if there's a lot of people in this room who may be part of criminal subcultures. Now, Palantir was funded by the CIA Venture Capitalist Fund in QTEL. I actually didn't know they had a Venture Capitalist Fund until I started digging around in this. And that uh, Palantir is actually used by ICE for mass uh, deportations and rounding up of, of immigrants, as well as other law enforcement officers to come after people who may be in criminalized subcultures. So the notion that organizations that are maybe advocating for criminalized subcultures climbing into bed with Peter Thiel don't, that doesn't make much sense to me. Now, additionally, in a speech given to the Cato Institute in 2009, Thiel stated, the vast increase in welfare beneficiaries and the extension of the franchise to women have rendered the notion of capitalist democracy into an oxymoron. Additionally, in that same talk, he stated, the 1920s were the last decade in American history during which one could be genuinely optimistic about politics. Now, if you know anything about the 1920s, it's the last time social and wealth inequity in this country remotely approached the absurd state that we're in today. So I think this gives a pretty clear vision of what Thiel imagines. Now, 
If we understand the economic drivers of military enlistment, right? If we understand that with a high school diploma or GED, you can earn significantly more money in the military, that you've got things like the PX and commissary that offer cheaper goods without being taxed. I mean, I, I had an ex-partner I was with for a long time who was in a military family, and the amount of financial benefits you get are incredible. We, we're seeing the social safety nets shredded before our eyes. TRICARE provides such incredible uh, insurance compared to what's available through Obamacare or the private market, it's pretty simple to argue that Peter Thiel's societal vision is fundamentally at odds with Matt's stated goal of treating and minimizing trauma to the troops. So I would say it has to be one or the other. Additionally, if we look at some of the broader systemic issues, we can see that mainstreaming has the potential to reinforce industrial civilization. So like I said, microdosing um, being used largely in Silicon Valley and elsewhere, the notion that using small amounts of LSD will make your programmers more competent. I would suggest that it's telling that LSD has begun to become accepted in society at the point where it no longer presents the threat of massive boundary dissolution and the potential for reorganizing society, but rather the reinforcement of uh, wage labor and, and systems that keep us isolated and alienated from each other. And additionally, when folks like Aubrey Marcus make statements about how if we all just drank Wachuma and can, came down to the jungle together, we could possibly overcome our, our humanitarian challenges, you know, I would suggest that people who are in that unique situation of, of owning the means of production might turn the means of production over to their workers as a way of actually making material benefits in the world rather than talking about how we can all come together in these fantastic situations. Additionally, if we look at a recent study, it stated, uh, done specifically on uh, psychedelic medicine studies, it pointed out that 82.3% of participants were non-Hispanic white and concluded that minorities are greatly underrepresented in psychedelic medicine studies. It went on to point out that as a result, many of the findings may not generalize to marginalized communities. Additionally, we can see these issues at play in the characterization of indigenous and things that go on within shamanic and drug tourism contexts. And Rick's quote of how do we reach out to police groups because they have more trauma, I would suggest the verb is a little misplaced. They cause more trauma. So, you know, I think as with cannabis, as with normal making statements about it doesn't matter why Boehner is now in support of legal cannabis while tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of folks are still locked down for basic drug crimes. To me, it's putting the cart before the horse. It's focusing on the wrong populations. It's not looking at the actual effects of systemic violence. And so when we take a look at what mainstreaming looks like, we can also see that there's a lot of utilization of power to reinforce misogyny and patriarchy. And the words that I'd like to share are not my own. They were published publicly, and I would ask that you all take about 30 seconds to read them to yourself. So with that being said, I have a couple questions for Max. Where do you draw the line? Is it if Compass signs exclusivity contracts with suppliers? Is it if Compass plans to subvert the regulators? Is it if one donor threatens to pull half a million dollars? What about two? What about five? Is it if the business models inherently deny access to others? Is it if you must collaborate with fascists and misogynists? Is it if your work requires legitimizing without critiquing murderous and traumatizing institutions and systems such as the Department of Defense or the Department of Health and Human Services? And is it if you're in breach of the statement of open science? Thank you.
Did you? Thank you. Oh, yeah. Ooh, that's a lot um, I would like to comment on the question of the role of, quote, for-profit and start by saying that I'm not sure that for-profit versus non-profit is actually the most helpful distinction to focus on. The reason, as I alluded to earlier, is that every physician, psychotherapist, lawyer for that matter, in private practice, and we can call it a professional practice with professional standards, reports their income over expenses in a way that the IRS defines it as profit. Schedule C is a report of profit and loss from business. So profit's not intrinsically a bad thing. In this particular world, uh, we seem to need money to survive. If you live in India, maybe you can live without money. It doesn't get very cold there. This is where it gets cold, we need shelter. If there's a group practice where a number of caregivers share a front office and a back office, there's now a group profit, which is probably a good thing. The decision makers are local. They're answerable to the community they're in. They have contact with the people they serve. So profit is not necessarily a bad thing. But I try to imagine what would be the benefit of delivering psychedelic assisted therapy in a scaled profit model. I have to scratch a little bit. But um, you know, the fact of the matter is Starbucks serves a pretty consistently good cup of coffee pretty much anywhere in the world. So the brand is worth something. There is quality control. There's consistency in the product. There's profit. But consumers also have a lot of choice. What would a psychedelic therapy chain look like? Well, hopefully it wouldn't be at all exclusive. Um, and let me give you an illustration of what I mean by that. Let's suppose you go to a cardiologist who says, hmm, sorry to tell you, you've got a little problem there. But don't worry, there's a fairly simple surgical intervention that's quite likely to correct it. Then the cardiologist goes on to say, but you know, I also have to tell you there's apparently a newer, somewhat more effective, somewhat safer version of that procedure. But the doctor across town who developed it won't tell the rest of us how he does it. So I think you'll probably want to go to the other cardiologist. How sad would that be? where doctors don't help each other, where they don't share their best tools and their discoveries and their brand new discoveries with the medical profession. An even worse outcome would be if your cardiologist doesn't know about the new procedure or knows about it and just doesn't tell you because then you'll leave is your practice. So we need to think of what a chain would look like that isn't subject to those kinds of shortcomings. Uh, I'm not quite sure what the economy of scale would be, but there might be one. You know, maybe you could buy really nice audio equipment in bulk. Maybe you could share designs for a session room. Uh, maybe you have a combination of treatment uh, modalities, which you're willing to share with the rest of the profession. You deliver that combination really well. Maybe you have beautiful locations. Maybe extraordinary food. There are lots of ways to compete that don't involve impeding or shutting out or erecting barriers. So we may see the development of um, we'll say branded psychedelic therapy. And I'm not convinced it's a bad thing, as long as there's a lot of freedom for everyone else to play and to have free access to even the newly discovered tools and technologies. Uh, all right, well, I, I, I'll try to um, answer all the questions very quickly. Um, but I will say that um, I'm particularly curious about the dangers of meditation. <laughs> but, uh, 
Um, so I'll start with Peter Thiel. Um, I think that we need to look at the actions of companies, not at the ethics of their investors. And I think the same is true. We have taken money from Rebecca Mercer. We've taken money from libertarians. We've taken money from Republicans. We've taken money from venture capitalists. We, I mean, taken means received in donations. And, <laughs> um, so I, I really think that that's not a logical way to think about these things. We can demonize particular investors um, or donors, but we need to look at the actions of the companies, and as uh, I don't think Peter Thiel is spending one second thinking about how Compass actually works, and I don't think they're trying to influence them. The, um, so I think that kind of argument to demonize the donors or investors doesn't really get us very far. Um, I think this question about the REMT was really good, the risk evaluation and mitigation strategies. And so what, um, what these are are mechanisms by the FDA to control risks. The drugs, certain drugs have certain specific risks that other drugs don't, and so they've now got regulatory authority to provide um, certain kind of controls over how these drugs are used medically. And where we are negotiating the realms with the FDA, with the DEA, and we will again with the European Medicines Agency, the main two things that we're going to be requiring in harmony with these organizations is that unlike most drugs that are approved as medicines, where then any physician can prescribe them, either for what they're approved for or for off-label uses, we are gonna require that only those people that have been trained by us in our method, or trained by other companies that are using our method and training people in that, will be able to prescribe and treat people with MDMA. So what the FDA is looking at is that the drug therapy combination was what was proven together. It's not that MDMA or psilocybin will be approved out of context in the way in which it's administered. So the people that administered it need to understand what that context is and be trained in it. So I feel quite comfortable that that's a good way because we don't want to start rolling these things out and have uh, people who are not well trained, who are taking uh, risky situations and, and not having good outcomes. The other thing that we're going to require with the REMS is that it's only administered under supervision that these are not take-home drugs. So that's the essence of the REMS, and I don't, I don't think it's a bad thing. I think these are ways to control the rollout of um, psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy to try to make it so that the benefits outweigh the risks and there's not a backlash against it. I think this question about um, how we think about uh, like the motivations of Rebecca Mercer. Um, Rebecca Mercer limited, she restricted her donation to us, and it's restricted only for veterans. So her concerns is veterans with PTSD. Um, what I find very interesting is that the main people have been trying to control what MAPS does <laughs> is people for, who are telling us, don't help Compass, don't do this, don't do that. Um, you know, don't take the money from Rebecca Mercer, don't do this or that. Rebecca Mercer herself has um, only said it has to be for veterans. So I think that what's happening, from what I understand, is the donation that she gave to us came out within several days of an op-ed that she wrote in the Wall Street Journal, where she tried to say that she felt that she was being unfairly attacked in the media, and that she was actually very progressive in all these different ways, and she was pro-immigrants and all this and stuff. And you read this, and it sounds great, and then they got this little part where she says, but I'm still pro-Trump. 
So you kind of wonder, how do these things all go together? But at the same time, I think her motivation was to be involved in um, helping veterans and also trying to show that she could be progressive in certain ways. And she was introduced to me by a left-wing uh, founder of a human rights organization. So it wasn't through right-wing military circles, it was through a human rights activist. Um, I think this um, question about um, bio-privacy, um, pri privacy, piracy, excuse me, bio-piracy. Sometimes I'm so grateful that MDMA came from a lab. It eliminates all sorts of stuff about, uh, you know, did we snatch it out of a cultural context? It's out of the modern Western scientific context invented by Merck in 1912 and so I think we're fortunate in that regard and that we can sort of develop our own models for it without people saying that we're um, culturally appropriating something from somebody else. I think the essence though to get back to this final thing which I was talking about is the for-profit nonprofit or the patenting or non-patenting aspect of it and so from that um, what I will say is that that development is not only inevitable but it is necessary because we as limited nonprofits, MAPS, um, USONA, Hefter, Beckley, there are hundreds and hundreds of millions of people, 300 million people with depression, 100 million people with treatment-resistant depression. There's 8 million people in the US with treatment-resistant PTSD. I do not think that we have the capacity to deliver the healing to all the people that need it from within a nonprofit context. I do think that the for-profit context needs to be operating under a ethical set of standards, and we will try to develop those and share those with others, and we can evaluate how people act. But I don't think that we should see the development of for-profit companies as a problem. We should see it as a sign of our success that we have eliminated after 30 years or so of work, MAPS is now 32 years old, we've eliminated, along with Hefter, along with other groups, the political obstructions for this research, which can now take place. So now, for-profit people can think, aha, it's about doing science, it's about getting the approvals, it's about treating patients. They don't have to factor in all of these other uh, uncertainties for political repression. So I welcome the entrance of for-profit people. I also welcome the fact that, as Bob showed in all those books, that there's so much of this that is already in the public domain that I am not scared nor do I believe that USONA, Bill Linton is not the one that's criticizing Compass, um, the, the people that work for um, Bill Linton, um, Roland Griffiths is sympathetic with um, Bill Richards working for Compass, that I don't think that the USONA people feel that they are gonna be unable to find a synthetic route to psilocybin, nor will they be unable to do their phase three research. So I think that this, um, patenting part, um, we want, if, if somebody could figure out a new way to make MDMA effective in one dose instead of three doses, we should let them do it. Let them, if they can patent, if somebody can invent some kind of uh, MDMA that's with, uh, okay, if somebody can invent a better version of MDMA, let them patent it. So, um, Maybe a place to start extending on that would be uh, to Alicia's question about uh, is it hysterical to think that uh, profit motive in healthcare inherently leads to injustice? And I don't think it is at all. I think it, like, uh, there are fundamental differences 
between a, a for-profit versus a, a universal system. So, so I also agree that the for-profit, non-profit is not the most helpful distinction because uh, the NFL was a non-profit. So you can, you can, you can, you can uh, do all kinds of unethical things in a non-profit structure. Uh, so it's more so uh, for-profit, I think, versus things that are in the common domain or that are more universally available. Um, but there are fundamental differences between those systems. So if you're in the United States, uh, and you're poor, and you um, are concerned about uh, you, you, uh, you have cancer diagnosis, and you're looking for the best cancer treatment. Um, people who have uh, much less severe forms of, of cancer uh, uh, can jump the line on you because they can pay more. Um, versus in a universalist system, uh, it's based on, on need, and so when people complain about um, you know, having to wait in line in, in universal healthcare systems, I think it's usually like somebody with a, a bad knee and a lot of money to spend who doesn't like waiting behind the guy with cancer who doesn't have much money to spend. Um, so, so that to me is an inherent in, injustice. Uh, and, uh, and if I could just give a, a, a personal example there, um, uh, my, my mom died uh, three years ago at age 67. And, uh, and I have to think that in part, our healthcare system had something to do with that, uh, partly because um, two years before her, her, her death, my parents had gone three years without health insurance, uh, which, which isn't great for your health when you're in your, your mid-60s. Uh, and then she had it for two years, uh, um, but had some health problems that developed during that time that ultimately killed her. So uh, that to me is an injustice, and, um, and, and that's coming from, uh, you know, uh, the, the family where my father at least went to college, where we kind of had enough. Like the further you go down in the, the socioeconomic scale, and, 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 uh, and for a person of color, the more likely those things are to happen. Uh, so, so I do think there are inherent injustices there. Uh, I'm also one who uh, was opposed to uh, the, the Mercer donation. Um, Paul Ferry had a word uh, for those kind of donations. He called it uh, false charity. That's where you, uh, with one hand, benefit uh, from systemic inequality, and from the other hand, uh, get to monopolize the altruism by, by giving a little bit of it back uh, with strings attached, uh, oftentimes. I'm not saying that that, that was, but, uh, but, but oftentimes that is the case. Um, and then uh, the last point was about the, the meditation research, uh, which I, I'm not saying a little bit more about that. But, uh, a few years ago, I've been kind of uncritical of meditation viewed as pretty neutral, pretty much beneficial to anyone. I was at a, a, a diversity conference um, for, for therapists in different fields and much of a panel discussion on uh, cultural issues in mindfulness meditation, which uh, was a question I hadn't thought about much, so, so I attended it. Um, and that panel, they talked about uh, things that they had seen, like uh, with, with mindfulness meditation being taught in public schools, for example. Uh, where, where it didn't sound a whole lot different than how uh, a psychiatric medication might be used in a public school to silence somebody, uh, to, to redirect their suffering inward and not act it out and express it. Um, and, and so I think you can um, very much, you know, the meditation is, is pretty much a, a neutral tool when you abstract it from uh, its context in, in uh, Buddhism or whatever system of meditation you're using. Um, and, and so you, it, 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 you're too behavioral with it, and you're just trying to use it for instrumental purposes, uh, for, for some behavior, some narrow focus. It, it has the potential to be used in oppressive ways. So, so telling that kid uh, who, who's uh, acting out based on some traumatic history they, they've had and they're not having enough attention in the school because it's understaffed, and whatever all the, the systemic things are, now, now they're acting out here in school, to, to tell them that to put them in a timeout with meditation, I think is, it can be oppressive. Uh, rather than finding, helping them find other ways to take action against uh, uh, these things that are negatively impacting them. 
Um, am I out of time? Yes. Okay. So, so anyways, uh, those research studies were in a Western context, and, and so um, might be something to do with the nature of capitalism. I suspect that can make meditation not be beneficial in some cases. So I think the medical question is dismissed in, in one simple case. There are people in this country dying because they can't afford insulin. Um, and they, they tried to get it crowdfunded, and it, they failed, and they died. And you can Google that, and it's just true. Um, I take a lot of issue with Rick talking about what Bill Linton and USONA are and are not cool with. Um, they're not here to talk about what they are and are not cool with. Uh, there's the issue that um, uh, Compass has, has signed an exclusivity deal with Onyx, right? Like there, there are actual market restrictions that they're engaged in and you're supporting that and you're well aware of it and you're not sharing that, right? Like you're pretending like that's not the case. Additionally, if you look into Tapestry Networks, which was started by um, George Goldsmith, right? They exist as a regulatory capture agency. They literally traffic in regulatory capture. Now, that means that they're set up to run the regulators. Um, that's problematic. Did y'all, yeah, I assume nobody here knows of Seven Cups. Seven Cups is one of the wonderful partnerships that Compass has that they're using to train their, um, their therapists with bots to engage in active listening. Um, as far as the, the Rebecca Mercer stuff, I think it was disingenuous that it was presented as a million dollar donation. It's $250,000 over four years. That money could have easily been made up over, well, and if we compare that with the Pineapple Fund, right? There was explicit statement about how much money was being raised over what period of time. Given the expertise of some of the folks making these statements, it's hard to not see that as misleading. Um, calling, calling accurate statements about things that Peter Thiel has said and expressed as his vision for society is demonization, like, that's literally killing us. Like, I have friends, I have family who are dying as a result of these policies. And for you to present that as demonization is patently untrue. Um, the Wall Street Journal article was PR. Rebecca Mercer has been referred to as the most powerful woman in the Republican Party. Noam Chomsky has uh, accurately labeled the Republican Party as presenting the greatest threat to humanity. Uh, you know, when, when, when certain people call these folks fascists, it's not a smear. It's literally, they are textbook fascists. They are merging industry and state. They are, they are shutting down free press. They are engaged in activities that put us all at risk. When we find ourselves in the streets, with folks who are tapping into histories of genocide, of, of like actual assault on our communities, it's not inappropriate to push them out of those spaces. And I would say so too with Compass. The biopiracy issue is coming up likely because I called out Chris Kellum and Zoe Holine and Cosmic Sister for um, engaging in what I would consider to be neo-colonialist and paternalist uh, uh, treatments of indigenous folks. They, Chris Kellum is literally on the record saying, Pure World's patent of maca is okay because they're granting the indigenous the rights to use their traditional plants. As though they have that permit, you know, as though they should have that power in the first place. It's laughable. If you go on my Facebook and you look at the, the things that Chris posted in defense of that, like seriously, just take a look. Um, Bob, I do take a bit of an issue with the, with the for-profit Starbucks model. If we look at, at what's going on on the production end, it's pretty horrific. You kind of acknowledged it with the cell phones too. I hear you as far as like, I, I blow glass. I literally, I blow glass so that I don't have to monetize my psychedelic commentaries. Um, that's a choice that I've made and my glass blowing is tied to extractive industry, right? I cannot blow glass in a non-industrial context and it comes with certain costs. That said, I think just because we recognize on the individual level that there is something to be said for for profit, doesn't mean we can't push towards systems that, that move away from that. And just as a final word, um, 
just looking into the maps B Corp, looking at the partnerships with DOD, DH, it says Kevin Baltic is here, like, like, we have major issues as far as sexual assault and misogyny stuff being covered up, and I think, like, I mean, Neil Goldsmith was on the, the uh, maps integration list until like a week or two ago. Like, according to Kevin's statement, there were there were damning there was damning evidence that he had engaged in fundamentally inappropriate behavior. So why the hell is Maps sending people who are looking for help integrating to him? Thank you. Uh, you can come here, please, uh, if you want to make a question. Oh, <laughs> um, a question for you, Rick. Um, but starting first, with thank you for your strategic vision and dedication lifelong that has brought us and and I'm also wondering um, why you think MAPS is best poised to be the organization to uh, deliver us into this next phase by having exclusive rights on who gets trained um, and then who delivers, um, particularly based on some of these things coming to light. But not just that, also statistics on the fact that um, those being, um, sorry, I'm, I'm going too long, huh? Sorry. Oh, yeah, I'll stop. No, 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 it's good. We're all on the lot of motions. And yeah, yeah. I'm done. I think there's enough there. Thank you. Yeah. Hi, uh, my name is Jiro. Uh, J-I-R-O, and uh, yeah, and uh, I, I, I really appreciate um, all people who come and uh, be, be together, and uh, I, I like the temperature. <laughs> and, um, I see uh, a special arm movement reached out. I, I see a, 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 a personal different energy by facial expression, but uh, uh, probably this high temperature cooking is, if we do now, I think it's beneficial for all of us. Thank you. Everybody, you know, in the same order, they can ha have a final comment about the questions or what the other panelists said. So just hold on tight. Last person that want to come up, yeah? In our infamous panel about s capitalism, and it's very few last moments. Thank you. Um, this question has to do with the uh, the different
difference between microdosing and taking doses where you're not sure you ever existed or were born, <laughs> and the relative advantages to that. And it touches on the, um, there was a man who used to um, have a lot to do with psychedelics, and he talked about becoming a person of knowledge. And the key of that was being able to go between the worlds so that you could face an angel in one room and turn around and face the devil in the next room, and it was all the same. And you could hold them both um, with love, because that's what the world was created of. Um, so I'm interested in your perspectives on that, given um, our pressure cooker. Thank you. <laughs> Just for you to know, it's 3.30, so officially we're done, but we're gonna have you know, a little extra five minutes and then it's the break. So please be concise, starting with Bob. Um, I'll pass from each to time. Bob, you don't have to. No, you can say it, two words. Just a final comment. Okay, I'll do the final comment. <laughs> yeah, the final comment. Thank you for the question, but I wanted to save it for something else. Um, <clears throat> lest anyone walk away with an incorrect notion I don't actually like the Starbucks model for the delivery of profound psychedelic <laughs> Because somebody up here asked me, could I possibly envision a non-unethical, for-profit model for psychedelic therapy delivery? So I took the challenge. You know, yeah, I think you can probably do it, but you need to put in a lot of checks and balances. Do I like it? Uh-uh. <laughs> um, around capitalism in particular, and please understand capitalism is different from for-profit. Capitalism needs to be profitable, but there can be profit outside of a capitalist structure. Um, beware of the nature of the beast. Are you familiar with the story where a person encounters a snake and it looks like maybe they can be friends, but the person's afraid of being getting, uh, getting bitten, and the snake says, oh, don't worry, we'll just be friends. I wouldn't bite you. They become friends, the snake bites the person. <laughs> and says, What's up with that? You know, ouch, I'm gonna die. Well, you knew I was a snake. Okay, I think we need to be very careful of what capitalists and capital-driven structures will do to stay alive. They have a lot of tools at their disposal. Regulatory capture was mentioned. It's not just patents. There's the whole world of commercial contracts, of being first movers, of having very keen marketing departments that will build your brand. Um, there's a whole wonderful, awful toolkit available. And I have to believe as a starting assumption that if there's a venture capital-backed entity coming into the psychedelic space, that they will use all of those available tools unless they promise not to. And so far, guess what? None of the two venture-backed organizations that I'm aware of have agreed to promise not to. So make it that what you will. If the snake bites, you knew what it was. Uh, well, let me start out with the uh, angel and the devil in different rooms and holding them all with love. Um, I think we need to think about that in terms of Peter Thiel and Rebecca Mercer. That these are dialogues that we're developing with people who have been demonized, rightly so, for certain things that they do. But I think we need to recognize that um, they're learning about psychotherapy. They're learning about spirituality to some extent. So it's not like these are fundamentally evil people. We should shun them completely. 
uh, we have to look at you know what strings are attached, if any. But I think that um, that idea of holding with love those who are um, on other sides of political divides is really important. And I think we need to build bridges. I don't think we should be burning bridges. I think we should be building bridges. As far as this question about the REMS and MAPS being the only organization that can train these therapists. Um, the reason is a regulatory reason. The reason is that we have developed this method. Uh, we have not patented this method. We have put this method called the interdirected therapy up on the website. Anybody could read it. Anybody can see our therapeutic approach. But it's the therapeutic approach that's being used in the clinical studies and the FDA wants people who will be able to prescribe this to know the therapeutic approach that we have developed. It's from Stan Groff, it's from Bill Richards, it's, it talks about the inner healer, the inner healing intelligence, it's, um, it's different than other therapeutic methods. And so we are being given the responsibility to make sure that once therapists are able to uh, prescribe this and deliver it to people, that they have learned um, how it became approved and how it was proved safe and efficacious. However, they can modify the method any way they want to. That's what's called prescribing off-label. So we're not going to control once people are approved. So um, they'll be able to innovate. And also, we are funding studies with some of the Veterans Administration trained therapists and some of the top PTSD researchers who have developed non-drug psychotherapies for PTSD, prolonged exposure, cognitive behavioral therapy, cognitive processing therapy. And we're actually funding studies for them to blend MDMA with their own methods. Maybe they'll come up with a better method. We're doing it primarily to teach the experts in PTSD research the value of MDMA. And so we're fine if they come up with other methods. Um, but we do have the obligation, both from the EMA and from the FDA, to train the therapists. And um, as I said, I don't think we'll be the only company doing that, certainly not after it goes generic. Um, and I, but I do want to be the only company until we're assured that somebody else can do it as good or better than we can. Okay, uh, so um, just, just one comment on uh, microdosing since that came up. Uh, uh, so, so I wouldn't um, uh, rule out any use of a psychedelic that's potentially beneficial and I'm interested in seeing research and all that, but I also think that's probably the use that is uh, is uh, most easily incorporated into capitalism and, and the most non-threatening, non-revolutionary use. Um, uh, at the same time, I recognize uh, people who use all types of drugs for, for all kinds of um, reasons and so if it helps somebody with their uh, depression or, or whatever it is that they're using it for who might to, to say don't do that or that's a, the wrong way to use it so uh, but i'm more sort of more skeptical that, that that used to have uh, the transformative potential or that, that that's going to you know, lead to broader acceptance in the culture because i think it, the, the experience is uh, not comparable in, in any way to a, to a full dose experience um and then just uh, for, for my final comments i, I would say if uh if some of you are, are out there thinking that, that uh, you're in agreement um, that, that, that the uh, role of capitalism and for-profit in the psychedelic space is problematic and you're not sure what to do about it, I, I would say um, uh, stop trying to figure out what to do about it and instead talk to other people about what to do about it. So um, I, I think our, our best solutions come from collective uh, efforts. Uh, just two things that have happened in, in the last year that I've been involved, three things that have happened in the last year that I've been involved with that for all this collective effort was one, um, organizing a drug users union in Chicago, uh, so so uh, so they can advocate for themselves and in, in the media and drug policy or else do harm reduction with each other. Um, it, it was starting a um, harm reduction and integration group for uh, 
people who use psychedelics um, so that they can know um, how to uh, mitigate the risks and then also process either positive or negative experiences they've had. Um, and then lastly, organizing around um, uh, creating safe consumption spaces uh, where people can use all the drugs. So uh, those are all things that, that, uh, that I just, you know, we, with a group of people um, just started talking about that. And then you, sometimes when you start talking about things, you actually end up doing them. Um, so, so, so I would say don't, don't rack your brain about how to resist capitalism. Like, you know, just for, for Matt, maybe that should be a standing item on your agenda at the meetings or something. So how, how, do we, how do we resist capitalism? Or we quit to, um, but, but just to, to talk about it collectively. Um, so Bob keeps it, uh, avoiding names. I'd just like to throw out there the company is Elusis. In 2015, they filed a patent for LSD for Alzheimer's. Look it up. It's on Google. Um, I think it's really interesting the number of clinicians and, and, and other folks that make uh, comments about how political and social systems work. When if we came into a lab and made similar comments about how the lab works or proposed a clinical study, we'd probably get laughed out. Um, and so, like when we're talking about like fascists, it, they, again, like it, it feels important to drive home the fact that like you know Rick and I had a conversation at Entheogenesis Australis where he informed me that as a Jew he didn't feel it was appropriate to punch people like Richard Spencer. I informed him that as a Jew, I felt the only way you engage with the censor is to punch him. Um, again, these like history is drenched with the blood of what happens when you let folks like this get power. When authoritarians get power, they use that power. We suffer for it. Um, additionally, uh, I guess as, as final comments, literally everything that I raised on that on that question page is happening. I've got evidence for most of it. I've got indications for most of it. I'm looking to, to that will be coming out in the coming months. And like, seriously, y'all, like most of that, if you start digging through the compass, uh, like who's who, look at Thomas Lundgren. The guy was the head of the EMA. Uh, he left, um, he started a consultancy company while he was still in the EMA. He left two months after that, and the watchdogs were like, oh, this looks a little off, but we're not quite sure. Seven months after that, two independent watchdog agencies were like, what the hell is this? Can we please get an investigation? It's all out there. It's not really well hidden. The amount of dirt that these people have been involved in is ridiculous. And the fact that there's defense of this, like to my mind, this literally threatens the future of anybody who's interested in doing psychedelic research. The Isle of Man is not like part of the, it's a regulatory haven. It's a tax haven, It's right? Like the reason that folks are looking at doing this stuff in the US is because we set the policy for the world. We are the most like draconian prohibitionist country. If you can get legalization done here, theoretically you could get it done anywhere. So why the hell would you jeopardize that? Thank you. Thank you everyone in the audience for being here.